on the campaign and what I think other campaigns need to be aware of is it's not targeting candidates, it's targeting voters. And I think that's an important mindset to have because it's trying to reach your voters and make them think things that aren't true. And it's targeting two decision points. It's whether or not to vote and then for whom to cast your ballot. Sometimes it has nothing to do with elections. It's these groups that will build tremendous momentum and engagement. And then after that, they will slowly start to become political. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 5th, 2020. This week on Lawfare's Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation, Alina Polyakova and I spoke with Lisa Kaplan and Sophie Lawton of Aletheia Group, an organization that works to detect and mitigate disinformation on social media. We wanted to talk to the two of them about a piece Lisa recently published on Lawfare about a massive network of companies run by The Soul Publishing and founded in Russia by a company called Admi. The companies publish bizarre craft videos on YouTube and Facebook, along with a handful of videos about history and politics with an overtly pro-Russian slant. So what exactly is going on here? We also talked about what red flags Lisa and Sophie look for in hunting down disinformation, their experiences tackling disinformation while working for Senator Angus King's re-election campaign in 2018, and how political campaigns need to tackle online influence efforts in 2020. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 517, Lisa Kaplan and Sophie Lawden on clickbait craft videos and influence campaigns. Thanks to you both for joining us. Before we dive into the details of the work you've been doing, I wondered if we could start by talking just a bit about who you are and what it is that you do. So just tell us about Aletheia Group. Sure. So I'm Lisa Kaplan. I'm the founder of Aletheia Group, and we detect and mitigate instances of social media manipulation and disinformation. We take an impact-based approach to this challenge. For us, we view disinformation as something that matters if consumers or voters see it, believe it, and change their behavior. And so by taking this tactical approach, we're able to get tactical in how to stop its influence. The idea being if you can catch it early when people see it, you have more response options than if they've already believed it and changed their behavior. Uh, I'm Sophie Lawton. I work with Lisa at Aletheia Group. Um, I actually started with Lisa on Angus King's campaign in 2018 and then moved along with her to Aletheia Group when she founded it. Um, I'm an analyst. I kind of work in the depths of the internet to kind of scrape up the disinformation that we're seeing. And it's a great job and I'm having such a great time and this election cycle is going to be fun. Yeah, so I definitely want to talk about what is going on this election cycle. But before we do that, Alina and I, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the podcast was to discuss this just astonishing story that Lisa published this December on Lawfare Building on Research conducted by the both of you. So again, let's just start with the super basics. What is The Soul Publishing? I still don't know. No one's really sure. (laughs) The Soul Publishing, it appears to be a large social media 
producer of content, and it's across many social media channels. Um, What we do know is that it is owned and operated by Russian nationals out of Cyprus and that they have legal entities in the United States and the United Kingdom, which they opened around 2018. And so I actually want to turn it over to Sophie to talk a little bit about how we came across the Soul Publishing because she's the one that found the thread that we started to pull. Yeah, so me, like many Americans, uh, kind of love these Facebook videos that you come across while you're scrolling through the app. I'm just like everyone else where I get pulled in pretty quickly. And uh, Facebook loves to share these with me uh, without me asking, <laughs> such as the algorithm. And so they were promoting these videos on my Facebook feed that were these hack videos, like life hacks, beauty hacks. Uh, And I noticed that the grammar was incredibly bad for some of these pages that were popping up. And it just got to me a little bit. I was was bugged by the grammar. So I messaged Lisa and I said, this this page keeps popping up and its grammar is just so bad. Kind of as a joke almost. And Lisa was like, well, what is it? And I was like, great question. You know, I should have been asking that myself. What is this? Why is it appearing on my Facebook page? I looked into a little bit. Facebook has that great um, transparency feature now where some of the pages, they'll show you where they're located out of, um, where the the admins are. And this one was run out of Cyprus. And Lisa was like, this is interesting. And so what we ended up doing was we took a look at the page that Sophie had originally come across. Um, and I forget which one it was. I want to say it was Brightside, but there are 35 in total in multiple languages. And we noticed that none of the account administrators were in the United States. And from there, we actually took a look. So another great transparency feature that Facebook has added is that it's made the political ad archive available to researchers like us so that we can see who has paid for political ads. And so we clicked on some of the pages, and there was one page in particular, Brightside, that had run advertisements that got caught by Facebook as being of issues of national importance or related to a candidate. And so we clicked into it, and we saw that there were no account administrators in the United States, that these ads had been paid for in rubles. And we just kind of kept digging and we kept finding their social media presence. We noticed that they were also on YouTube and Twitter and Pinterest and Instagram. Instagram. So we primarily focus our research on the Facebook and YouTube presences. But what we noticed was that So as I mentioned, we found about 35 in English. And then we noticed that they were in other languages as well. So we limited our review to the English language pages. And most of it was the clickbait content that Sophie loves. (laughs) (laughs) It was craft videos. It was DIY videos. But what was really interesting to us was that through some of these partnership programs, the content that they were creating was also likely funding their operations. And again, not that there's anything wrong with that. I think that the partnership program, you know, gives people who are creating content a way to receive their share of ad revenue. But we just found it really interesting that this group essentially popped up overnight. Their first page was founded in February of 2015, I think. And it then grew to this massive following where it became the third largest group of YouTube channels and is probably making ballpark in the tens of millions. I think that was something that really stood out to us when we were looking at it too in the first place was that just the numbers of how incredibly large um, the sole publishing was online. 
uh, the first page we found had millions of followers, millions of likes, and all of their, their videos were actually being reacted to and shared. It wasn't like people were just following them with no interactions. When we found out that they were the third largest media corporation on Facebook and YouTube, only under like Comcast and Disney, that was something where we were like, what is this? What are people consuming? Where is it coming from? It seems like what you're describing so far, as you said, it was a pretty large media conglomerate. But I guess my question is, you know, what's what's really different from what you uncovered from any media organization that is trying to get clicks and is pushing out uh, some of this content, you know, like like BuzzFeed, for example. So what really made this so suspect to you? So what made this group of pages, this group of or group of Facebook pages and group of YouTube channels different is that while they had that 99% clickbait fun infotainment sort of content. They also had this other 1% that to me seemed weirdly political. And so it had these videos. So one of them was the history of Russia, like you've never seen it before. And it had this animated banana telling a very Russian perspective of history, you know, saying things like Alaska was a gift to the United States, say, you know, showing how it laid claim to Ukraine, for example, as part of its history. Then the question becomes taking our perspective of disinformation only matters if people see it, believe it and change their behavior. What does it mean if a group of people all of a sudden think that Alaska was a gift to the United States? Is that going to make them feel warm and fuzzy about the Kremlin? I don't know. But it, these this is what made it interesting to us. Okay, what strikes me about what you describe in this investigation you took on is how similar at least what you're saying seems to be to the IRA operations, the Internet Research Agency, um, in terms of how they built support through these seemingly innocuous videos like cat videos and you know pictures of sexy ladies. Uh, but then, you know, over time, as they were ramping up their interference operations um, around the U.S. 2016 elections, you started to see this creep of political ads and more and more political content. But is that something that you would connect or do you see you see the tactics being similar? I mean, just is there a relationship there at all that you can point to in any in any way? So. I think to your point, Alina, it is alarming that this is something that is even in the realm of possibilities. We we don't know, to be perfectly honest. We are not, we didn't find any like smoking gun. However, we also didn't find anything that was a definitive no, because that's just not how these operations work. And so we were only using open source data in order to try to figure out what was happening. And we were primarily concerned with the tactics that were being used to do things like grow an audience, to do things like increase engagement levels. Because to your point, that is something that we know has been used in the past. We also know that the company actually started in Russia. It started in Kazan in 2004, and the founders um, later moved it to Limassol, Cyprus in 2015. That being said, as I mentioned, we're not a company that puts boots on the ground. And so that's something that I think would probably be better answered by, frankly, the platforms or the government if they've taken any look into this. And I think that's something that was important for us when writing this report and doing the research was that 
Although it's okay for me and many other Americans to watch these videos on Facebook and to be entertained, it's important to know where this information is coming from and whether it's accurate or not and what kind of information and media you might be consuming that Facebook is just sharing to you without you asking for it. So. And it's not just Facebook, it's YouTube as well. Absolutely. Um, and all of the social media platforms, really. I think it for us, this raised a lot of questions around the algorithms and what are the ethics around what we're algorithmically all shown in our news feeds. And the idea that anybody can build an audience and gain trust with their viewers and those who are consuming um, whatever content they're putting out on social media you know, it's not always obvious where it's coming from. And unless you're people like us who are (laughs) getting business records and doing an investigation and looking into the corporate structure of an organization, you don't know. And so whose responsibility is it to make this information available? I, you know, hear that the platforms can only investigate what's happening on their own platform because they don't have the resources. Well, we as a startup bought the records for $5. (laughs) So I just don't buy it. Yeah, so so let's talk about the role of the platforms in all this. I mean, anything you can say about any collaboration you had with the platforms in conducting this investigation, how they responded once it was published. I know that um, if uh, listeners go to Lisa's original piece, one of the videos we embedded from the soul has actually been taken down. So talk a little bit more about that. So I do think that there are people who are at the social media platforms that are really trying to do the right thing, and they were very receptive to receiving the information that we had compiled. What shocked me is that they only look within their own platforms, and I think that that's what caused them to maybe miss the bigger part of the story. And we, again, were only looking at Facebook and YouTube, so we didn't flag anything for the other platforms. What surprised me the most – so first of all, I want to say that they – this, again, is the third largest – presence on YouTube. I'm not sure how it stacks up against on Facebook, but I would assume it's similarly large. It surprised me that the initial answer from the platforms wasn't, yep, we already know exactly what this is because they're doing their own internal auditing or whatever. But that being said, they did do a pretty quick investigation. They took our concerns very seriously. And for that, I'm really grateful. Um, And I found them to be generally collaborative and want to get this right. Again, I don't think that Mark Zuckerberg um, was sitting in his dorm room at Harvard saying, how do I undermine democracy by giving autocrats the tools they need in order to cause chaos in American democracy? However, I do think that there this showed that there's maybe some room for improvement, even within the transparency features. So another one that Facebook rolled out actually right in the middle of the study is that you can now see the name of the company on some of the pages um, as being Admi and located in Cyprus. And I think that's a really important first step. However, if you go look at one page, you can't then see which are all of the pages that Admi is operating. And so you're still not getting the full picture. The The platforms, though, I would say were largely responsive. Um, the other thing that really surprised me, though, is In order to monetize the platforms, um, I personally found the bar to be a little bit low. So in order to monetize, you need to have, you know, proof of address, a bank account, which in this case we can assume is in Cyprus, and a Gmail. And so it's just a little surprising to me when we think about um, institutions that normally provide payment to individuals for their work 
it's usually a higher bar in the sense that you also need additional documentation before you can actually pay someone, whether that's, you know, proof of identity, proof of residency, and sure, some of those you may be able to get from a bank. But um, I just think that there could be a little bit more done in order to ensure who the end recipient is. And so for for listeners who haven't had a chance to look at the piece yet, can you explain why this question of monetization is so important um, regarding this research? Sure, absolutely. So the monetization is important because this is appears to be entirely funded off of ad revenue, meaning that this group is likely making, according to open source estimates and different platforms like Knox Influencer that show estimates for how much money a an entity or a content creator has received, it could be in the tens of millions of dollars a year. And if they are entirely funding their their operations off of ad revenue, it's significant because it would essentially mean that these platforms are actually funding this organization that, for whatever reason, has created inaccurate information or potentially inaccurate content, especially when it comes to some of this political content. And so the question becomes, who's responsible? Yeah, so you mentioned earlier some of the changes that Facebook especially has made to introduce more of these transparency features um, into the platform that helped you do this kind of research. And that seems like I move in the right direction. But you know, at the same time, we also brought up this question of the black box of the algorithm, which uh, we've talked about in the podcast uh, a few times already. And I think the big question still remains. I mean, it's Yes, it's in terms of responsibility, of course, and who's responsible for it. Is it the the social media company like Facebook? Is it the advertisers um, who may need to have more transparency themselves into where their money is going, for example? It's it's a kind of related issue to this. Whose fault is it, I suppose? And I guess my question to you, one that we continue to struggle with, is what else can companies do when it comes to this question of algorithm transparency that you would find helpful um, as researchers who are looking into this black box? So I think that the algorithms, frankly, just need to be made more transparent. You know, I know that the social media platforms didn't necessarily ask for this role, but with, you know, over two thirds of Americans getting their news on social media platforms, it is in effect becoming a different type of media provider than it originally intended. And so I think that a lot of the challenges that we're having could be solved with transparency into the algorithms and frankly, giving users more control over their algorithms. So all that is to say, for example, like Sophie, again, <laughs> loves these clickbait videos. <laughs> a little too We're much. We're really ragging on Sophie here. I know, but she's my favorite. Um, <laughs> so um, I've never watched them. I watch dog videos, if I'm being totally honest. <laughs> Lisa all- loves her dog videos. I really do. Um, and so, so when we think about it in that sense, you know, we're only seeing what we see in our silos. And now let's take it from like, funny mental break sort of videos and think about what that means with how we consume media. I think that the question that we also need to ask is what does that mean when we're consuming news? And so to use myself as an example, I pretty much only read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. And so that's really all that comes up in my news feed organically. Um, And when I think about Twitter, which is where I've been getting a lot of my news lately, I'm following the same like kind of center national security sort of pundits um, on Twitter, and that's who I'm seeing. I never see Breitbart. 
I never see Huffington Post. And so what does that mean when we're not able to elect to see that sort of content and be able to try to get different types of information organically? It's almost as if you know, we've allowed the social media platforms to have control over what we watch on TV. And so they've gotten to know our behavior. So they know every night I get home and I turn on the nightly news. And so it's already on for me. And they know, you know, what type of advertisements to show me. So they're showing me different advertisements that they might be showing a neighbor of mine. And then from there, you still have the remote control, but you don't need to change the channel. And it's a little bit on us to then be able to go out and seek out these instances of opposing viewpoints and other sources of information. But if the average social media user isn't doing that, then I don't understand why they couldn't elect to do it and make it easier by electing to do things like change their own algorithm and have more control over the information that they see. So I've been using my Facebook uh, since this report came out and we did the research on the soul as uh, kind of a test experiment with the algorithm. After I noticed, I became aware of what I was seeing on my Facebook page. I I began to um, stop scrolling on videos specifically. I wouldn't even watch them. I would just be scrolling, see a video. I'd stop on my phone, put my phone down, let it run and pick it up again. Um, and now on my the app itself, not necessarily on my computer page, but on the app on Facebook, every other post will be a video of a from a page I don't follow or I don't like and none of my friends like just because it's some clickbait video that Facebook decided that I wanted to watch, whether I'd actually watched the previous videos or not. So personally, I found it super interesting, the the response that the app had itself of just me stopping and pausing and not like scrolling past things and noticing exactly what I was watching and picking up on those woodworking videos and then showing me more like cutting boards being made or more of those resin tables. Love those, big fan um, being created. And I think it's just important that you know, the average Facebook user is aware that this is happening. And it can be hard to notice when you're thinking, oh, this is great. Like, I'm so glad I'm seeing another resin table video. But they're not really aware of why it's popping up there. What I find really fascinating about this discussion is something we've also talked about on the podcast is the fact that, you know, social media companies through these predictive algorithms actually already have kind of this voodoo version of all of us. Uh, ready to go, even if you're not on Facebook, they kind of already know that you're out there. And as soon as you sign in or you join, the algorithm already kind of could predict exactly the kinds of things that you're likely to want to see based on a whole variety of factors that we don't have a lot of insight into, obviously. And I've always found this incredibly creepy. But I also wanted to kind of tag back and look into the look into the past as to how uh, both of you started working on this, because I think the investigation on the soul is really interesting, but it's also interesting to me how you came to this point in your careers where, you know, you started this company, um, Althea, and carried out this really fascinating investigation. I think, Lisa, you and I met when you were actually working in the campaign of uh, Maine Senator Angus King, um, and you had encountered disinformation in the context of political campaigns while you were there. And obviously, we're in campaign season now. But I wanted to get you to talk a little bit more about how, what did you actually experience um, while you were working inside the campaign? 
Sure. And I also want to talk about a point that you touched upon just about the wealth of data that's available to advertisers because I'm somebody who used to use those features in order to promote and push out content. Uh, having worked in the digital space. And so it really is one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is just the level of granularity to which you can target people. And so if I have an email list, I can upload it and then be able to reach people with similar preferences. Um, I can target people who have children zero to two years old who live in Milwaukee and have an associate's degree and like cheese. It's just I don't think it's something that people fully understand or appreciate because, you know, I obviously wasn't using those tools for nefarious purposes. I was always upfront about it. But who's to, you know, necessarily stop someone from doing so? So how did I get into this space? So that's a great question. So Alina is somebody who I called when I was like, I don't understand what's happening on the internet. So Alina has been studying all of this before it was cool. And I got linked up to her (laughs) from one of my mentors. So on the campaign, essentially what happened is in 2018, Special Investigator Robert Mueller's indictment came out and it laid out the playbook for what happened in 2016. I don't think that he ever thought that those Russians would get extradited and stand trial in the United States. However, I found it pretty helpful in figuring out what we might be up against. Um And so I read that and I said to myself, okay, my boss is on armed services, intelligence, and energy. How would we know if this were happening to us? What would we do if we found it? And so we did find instances of social media manipulation when we were on the campaign. I think one of the things that we're talking about now, um, especially as we're heading into 2020, is that, yes, the Russians started it, but it's not just Russians. When you look at Iowa, um, a Daily Beast reporter said, and I totally agree with, nobody trolls Americans like Americans. (laughs) And so um, I think what's happening and the way we've gotten into this was, frankly, trial by fire and out of necessity. But one of the unique positions of being on an independent campaign is that you see the left and the right. And it's just one of those issues that really kept me up at night, the idea that we can't trust the information that we see, we can't, our democracy and our, you know, capitalist society depends on people having access to information in order to make informed decisions. And so, we need to protect that. We need to make sure that people have access to accurate information. And we need to take these conspiracy theories seriously. So since then, we've been researching what's happening in the information sphere. We work with others to be able to help them come up with a strategy to be able to detect and mitigate it when it happens to them. And it's not an if, it's a when. And it's a matter of being prepared. It's a matter of being able to act in a way that's going to further your goal. Because I think the other piece about this, and one of the things we always try to help our clients with, is we have a tendency to think, okay, algorithm's super complex. Like, this is all happening in digital. You know, I'm not a coder. But actually, like, you can see this happening. These wars are being fought out in the open. And that means that you can go detect it and do something about it. And it's person versus person. It's more like digital chess than anything else. And that means that when something happens, it's your move. 
Uh, and we started looking at disinformation online kind of at the same time that the QAnon conspiracy really blew up in national media. And that could be a whole another hour long podcast. Um, but I think our team on the campaign, we were really kind of terrified of this, this like group of people online who have these theories about you know, Democratic, independent, Republican candidates, whoever. And they were people who had taken action offline. And that was something that was nerve wracking to everyone who was looking into this. Um, and I think that really made us kind of take a second look and and say, well, what should we be doing? Like if if there's a chance that there could be offline action or online action that really hurts either the campaign or just like the information space in general, like what should we be doing? So can you give us an example of sort of what kinds of disinformation you encountered on the King campaign? Like what specific instances did you come across? On the campaign and what I think other campaigns need to be aware of is it's not targeting candidates, it's targeting voters. And I think that's an important mindset to have because it's trying to reach your voters and make them think things that aren't true. And it's targeting two decision points. It's whether or not to vote and then for whom to cast your ballot. Sometimes it has nothing to do with elections. It's these groups that will build tremendous momentum and engagement. And then after that, they will slowly start to become political. So one example that we've talked about in the past is the NFL take a knee movement. And so that was widely reported, not by us, that it was propped up by the Russian government on both sides. What we did see is there was a page called Boycott NFL 2018. And we found it because we realized that a lot of when we were doing our social listening to try to find instances of disinformation and social media manipulation, we saw a lot of things that were just fundamentally not true. And then we realized that real voters were being influenced by this page or they were all following this page. And the page, you know, if it's saying boycott the NFL, we didn't see any posts really that were related to the NFL. Um, we did see one that said Colin Kaepernick was trying to trademark his body. But other than that, they were about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump who weren't running in 2018. And so the question for us became, what is this? Where is it coming from? What do we do about it? The reason why I say it's so important to catch this early and to take a proactive stance is because, again, there are good people at the social media platforms who don't want this to happen either. And so we actually worked with them, and I recommend that campaigns do the same because we were able to show that it violated community standards and the page was since removed. So that's one example. I think that there's a whole variety of different threats, and it's also a question of these, these campaigns are multi-layered. So it's not just happening on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. It definitely is happening there. But it's also happening on these blog sites. It's happening in the comments. It's happening pretty much anywhere where somebody could potentially be influenced. And it's even happening in an overt way. RT is an actual news outlet with an actual Facebook page that is actually providing the Russian government's point of view. That's one that's transparent. And so people can make the decision whether or not to trust that information as much as they might trust, I don't know, a non-government funded outlet. But these questions that we need to start considering, again, going back to what's happening in 2020, is how can we be better prepared to make sure that voters are protected? So that brings up the 
obvious question, I think, is whether you think the 2020 campaigns are doing enough to counter disinformation now. I mean, I don't think anybody's doing enough. (laughs) Short answer, no. (laughs) I think campaigns are definitely starting to wake up to this issue, I think especially post-Iowa and just realizing what's happening. One of the things that I find heartening and disheartening all at the same time is we are getting to a point where some campaigns are starting to pledge to not use these social media manipulation tactics against American voters. And I think that's a great step. I think that every campaign should do that because I don't think that you should be in an elected office if you're using the same tactics against the American people that the Russian government uses part of its influence operations. Call me crazy. That being said, I think that there there's more that can be done in terms of the detection piece. I think that every campaign and some campaigns are still gearing up and frankly don't have full staffs yet need to consider this as part of their overall strategy of securing their infrastructure because you can be protected against every single hack if fake emails get out there and are swirling around and people believe them to be true it will have the exact same effect not to give everyone ideas but it's entirely possible and that's the type of thing that campaigns need to be prepared for uh well i think it's important for campaigns to know that It's not as difficult as they might think. It's something that every campaign should be doing and should be taking into consideration and and just be asking the questions and what they should be, you know, adding to the campaign to make themselves more aware of the online information space. I think to Sophie's point, this isn't necessarily a question of can it be done because it can be done. You know, you might not be able to stop all of it, but you can stop a lot of it. And I think that sometimes campaigns, you know, Resources are always scarce on a campaign. There are these multi-million dollar organizations that pop up overnight. They have incredible expenses when it comes to salaries, to buying, you know, advertising on TV. That stuff really does add up. And I get that there's never enough resources. That being said, I don't think it should be a trade-off between figuring out how to talk to your voters in Pennsylvania 6 versus, you know, figuring out how to make sure nobody thinks you kick dogs. So, Lisa, you mentioned Iowa as something that candidates need to think about in preparing themselves for what's coming. So recently we had the Iowa caucuses. It turned into a complete mess. Some caucus leaders couldn't report the data that they had because the Democratic Party was using an app that didn't work. Some of the data got a little scrambled. There were a lot of conspiracy theories floating around on left and right about what was going on. So I'm interested in both of your thoughts about what the lessons of that are going forward. Something we noticed on Twitter, especially just because I look at Twitter six or seven times a day, um, was this use of these real facts that were coming out and combining a bunch of things that everyone had learned that were true into these wild theories. Um, And I, you know, there's not just one example of that. It happened often. And these things that are being shared, you know, they are factual. You know, it's a bunch of facts, but you can't just take facts, combine them into this idea and spread that that that's the truth. Um, And I think that's something that social media users need to be more aware of. And I think that Iowa really was in a lot of ways the perfect storm. And and I'm personally, if we're going to learn these lessons, I'm glad we learned them early. So I think, first of all, this gets back to an issue of kind of digital literacy, frankly, that affects a lot of influence operations. 
adopting a new technology within two weeks when there's really a situation that has zero room for error is always a risk. And so I think one of the things that we've learned, and we've learned this from healthcare.gov too, is we can do better as a country at technology rollouts. That being said, it did create a lot of confusion, and that's the perfect time for a bad actor to insert themselves. We've seen no evidence that any foreign actors interfered in this situation, and frankly, that doesn't surprise me because the way these operations typically work is it can take sometimes years or months to lay the groundwork to get the foundation to be able to get past the security teams at all the social media platforms. And so you don't need to necessarily activate and run the risk of exposing yourself if your goal is to create chaos and chaos already exists. We did this one to ourselves. I also think, too, it highlights the need for responsible media and responsible talking points from our politicians who are trusted sources of information. We need to be really vetting everything before it goes out the door because, to Sophie's point, if you piece it all together in a way that makes sense for you to advance your goal, then that may not necessarily be the truth. And I think, too, we need to start becoming a bit more patient. I The world is still turning, even though we didn't find out the results that night, and I think that's okay. But the broader challenge here is a lot of it was domestic. And so you don't want to impede on anybody's First Amendment right for freedom of speech. However, when we have a lack of transparency, when not everything on the internet goes through editorial review, we also need to do a better job of making sure that the information that we're communicating is accurate and we're not reporting on ad hoc or incomplete stories, incomplete fact sets. And I think that's something that we learned from this scenario. We did see some symptoms of, I would say, digital organizing, which is a separate conversation that I'm generally skeptical of, but it looked to be an authentic conversation. So one of the themes that we have been discussing on the Arbiters of Truth podcast is forcing our generous guests to make predictions about uh, what kind of fresh hell we can expect uh, this year. And given all the work you've been doing in this, given you work on the campaigns. How bad is it going to be as we near November? Uh, my prediction is that it's only going to get worse. And, you know, it was bad in 2016. It was bad in 2018. And I think it's only going to get worse, <laughs> even though it's kind of on our radar slightly more. Could be better. Um, it's still, I think, going to be a challenge for all political candidates, any political groups, anyone slightly related to politics. And I'm really prepared for a Twitter storm. Um, I'm ready for more bot networks. I'm ready for new emojis. I'm just super prepared. (laughs) So I want to start by being an optimist here because I definitely think we have a long road ahead, but there are some positives. During the 2016 elections, nobody was talking about it. Now everybody is talking about it. Even some people who don't always know what they're talking about are talking about it. And So I think that this is something that's front of mind and it's in the general discourse and the stream of consciousness of American voters. 
And I also think, too, that we have an awareness of things that haven't happened yet. And I think that that's a positive. So every most people know at this point what a deep fake is, at least in concept. The idea that it's a manufactured video or audio that was created by a machine and it's not reflective of events that actually happened. So that if somebody comes forward and says, this is a deep fake and they're able to prove it, we're not having to have the conversation, what's a deep fake? So I think that's kind of the positives. The negatives is I don't think that we've made enough meaningful change at any level, really, to be able to expect this not to happen. There's very little that's happened on the regulatory level. There's you know, additional transparency features, which are hugely helpful, but there's more that the platforms can be doing in terms of transparency and making it easy to access some of these features that are great, but not necessarily well integrated into the user experience. We could be doing things like teaching this in school so that there are digital literacy efforts so we're able to consume consume digital media more critically. Those are starting to happen in pockets, but it's not a nationwide effort yet. And I do think that it's a serious problem that not everybody in our country thinks that asking a foreign power to intervene in our elections is a serious problem. And again, I think that goes back to a lot of our information sphere and the type of media that we're consuming in our own echo chambers. But I'm not optimistic that we'll get through 2020 unscathed. And I also particularly worry about this narrative around the integrity of our institutions. And Iowa didn't help to have a free, fair, clean election. And I'm worried more about the institutions getting targeted than the candidates. I I wish I could disagree with you. (laughs) Thanks to both of you for coming in. This was a great conversation. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to the Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Lisa Kaplan and Sophie Lawton. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineers this week were Jacob Schultz and Elliot Setzer, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on the podcasting app of your choice. And as always, thanks for listening.